0: History nerds and historians my name is christina and this is Up history where we talk about a little tidbit from history that's super fucked up today is the second installment of my new salem series as i learn about my new hometown and research for tours and of course i find myself leaning towards women's history as well as witchy and spooky history is anyone who has listened to me before surprised by this at all And this desire to speak about women from Salem just seems to increase with the more research that I do. Like for example, to be a tour guide in Salem, you have to take an exam and be licensed. And the city provides you a study guide that has these scan pages from these really outdated books, like literally from the fifties and sixties that gives information about notable places and history and people. And I could barely find anything about women in these books. And I actually found myself getting like a little annoyed when I was going through this study guide because they would scan an entire page that had what they deemed pertinent information on it, but wouldn't redact the information that wasn't deemed important. So I would start reading something interesting and then wouldn't be able to finish it. So I actually went and found these books online to read in full to see what I missed. And I thought it would also be an added bonus learning about some of the history that the city didn't deem important. And even in that, in reading the entirety of these books, women are barely mentioned. If women are mentioned, it's usually only like in passing as a reference to their husbands. Like Nathaniel Hawthorne lived here with his wife Sophia. Or saying that like certain women were in town, like Mr. So-and-so went to go see Jenny Lind in Boston. Even though these women may have done amazing things themselves, and partially because I was getting annoyed but also out of pure curiosity I went to the index and went through and like physically counted the women mentioned in one of these books and in over 500 names mentioned only 32 of them were women and five of those were only Mrs. Husband's name and that's fucked up and here at After History we like to bring light to people who society may have forgotten or overlooked even if those people are half of the population. And I know some of you who may not be as interested in women's history as me, and obviously not as like passionate about it, uh, and only want to listen to my sarcastic social commentary, might be thinking, well, Christina, maybe women just didn't do that much back in the day in Salem. And to that i say i have found quite a few women so far who were amazing and influential not only to salem's history but to u.s history as a whole and quite a few of them happened before these now outdated books were written so i decided that my tour angle is a women and witches history tour where we talk about notable women in salem's history the history of witchcraft and then of course the salem witch trials I'm planning on offering another tour option as well, but we'll talk about that in another episode. And you all, my amazing history nerds and historians, will get to hear about these stories first. So with this women and witches history tour in mind, today we're going to talk about Charlotte Now, before we begin, I do want to just say that there are times when I'm going to be quoting people directly or referring to an organization that may have words that would today be considered derogatory or racist, but I just wanted to specify that I'm not trying to be offensive in any way. But schools like the Preparatory High School for Negro Youth was actually named that. It's not me calling Black youth a derogatory term. It was just the socially acceptable term for that time. And to not call these schools what they actually were or to like change the words that were spoken by people of color when referring to their situation and standing in life and sort of whitewashing everything is way more offensive, in my opinion. So anyway sit back relax and practice your oh good god what the fuck faces charlotte louise bridges fortin was born on august 17th 1837 in philadelphia pennsylvania which was actually just a few days ago so happy belated 184th birthday charlotte Her father was Robert Bridges Fortin, and her mother was Mary Virginia Wood. Robert was born a free black man in Philadelphia, and Mary Virginia was actually born into slavery in North Carolina. She was freed in 1832 with her mother and sisters, and relocated to Philadelphia, where she later met Robert, and they got married in 1836. Charlotte was born, as I said already, in 1837, and unfortunately Mary died in 1840 when Charlotte was only three. Charlotte spent the rest of her childhood with her grandmother and aunts on both sides helping raise her along with her father so she still had a significant maternal presence in her life but she definitely had this kind of hole in her heart where her mother could be and she wrote about it a lot later in some like further poetry. Charlotte's grandfather was a really interesting man named James Fortin and although this episode is about Charlotte we need to talk about how amazing this man and some of the other people in her life are first to show her roots and what helped contribute to the kind of person she was. And I just love James Fortin. Like, he's getting up there with Mary Ellen Pleasant, guys. (laughs) So James Fortin was born in 1766 in Philadelphia, Pennsylvania, and was born a free black man and was educated in a Quaker school for black children. I'm almost positive that I did mention this when we spoke about Mary Ellen Pleasant before, who is still one of my favorite people to date, but the Quakers were some of the first abolitionists in the country. James's father died when he was relatively young, so James started supporting his family by working odd jobs around the town, and during the Revolutionary War, at only 15 years old, he volunteered to be a powder boy on a privateer ship. Which is just a really fancy name for a pirate ship. More specifically, a legal pirate ship. So the government, not just in the colonies, but in other countries as well, would legalize piracy during war times or times when it seemed like war was imminent sort of like a rogue navy during the revolutionary war james was actually captured and imprisoned for seven months by the british but this didn't make him dislike the british because he actually moved to england for about a year after the war but the call of a brand new country that was seeming to struggle when it came to racial equality made him move back to Philadelphia, where he continued working with ships. He eventually got an apprenticeship as a sailmaker under a man named Robert Bridges, which he later named one of his sons after. And James was then promoted to foreman, having more than 30 people under him. And at the age of 32 in 1798, James Forton purchased this company and became one of the richest, if not the richest black men in this new country of the United States of America. Now, one article that I read about him said that during this time, it was rare for an apprentice to take over the business that he learned the trade in and even more rare, practically non-existent for a black man to learn a trade and then take over a largely successful white owned business that was integrated because James employed black and white men at his business. He also perfected a sale with this company that allowed ships to maneuver easier and sail faster and accumulated a wealth of anywhere from a hundred thousand to $300,000, depending on what sources you read, which in the year 1800 would be equivalent of over 300 to $600 million today. If my calculations are correct, but you all probably know by now, I hate math. <laughs> now, while some people would take this money and buy a giant house and never work another day in their lives and con- or concern themselves with the outside world, James gave back to the community. He purchased slaves freedom, he opened a school for black children, contributed money to known large abolitionists during this time, and his home located at 336 Lombard Street was a stop on the Underground Railroad. He was very involved in politics and wasn't afraid to speak out for the cause. He also spoke out a lot against some of the abolitionist ideals of the time because there was this ongoing argument by the American Colonization Society that slavery should be abolished. Yay. And all of the freed slaves should be sent to Liberia because they were only fit to either be servants in America or barbarians in Africa, which was not Yay. And James stood up to them and argued that biologically we're all the same species and a white man and a black man could both be educated and business owners and positively contribute to society as he stood there in front of them an educated free black man, pre civil war, like look in my eyes and tell me I don't contribute to society. And that I only belong in Africa or as a fucking servant, I'll wait, American colonization society. He wrote in one pamphlet, quote, Has the God who made the white man and black left any record, declaring us as a different species? Are we not sustained by the same power, supported by the same food, hurt by the same wounds, wounded by the same wrongs, pleased with the same delights and propagated by the same means? And should we not then enjoy the same liberty and be protected by the same laws? And the American colonization society was like, no, 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 but you are such a leader and an influence, and people will listen to you. You could be the king of Liberia. Isn't that what you want? Don't you want to be a fucking king? And he responded that he would rather stay James Fortin's sailmaker in Philadelphia than enjoy the highest offices and the gift of their society, and that although their ancestors were brought to America against their will, they should be able to stay and prosper in the land that was built on the blood and sweat of their people. And to be told to go back where he came from, when he was born in America, and his father was born in America, and his father's father was born in America, was nonsensical, because his people, his family had not been in Africa for over 100 years at this point. America is his home. And he and all of the other people of color deserve to be there as much as the white people. And he gathered together a whole group of black men who protested the American Colonization Society. Some historians call James Forton the first true abolitionist in America, and he continued to fight this fight until his death in 1842, where he had one of the largest funerals in the history of Philadelphia even today. In addition to black rights, James was also a feminist and used his money in support of the women's rights movement with his wife, Van Deen, James's daughter, or also Charlotte's aunt, Harriet, met Robert Purvis, who was also really influential in the abolitionist movement and an advocate for the women's rights movement, serving as the vice president of the Women's Suffrage Society and was also a stop and safe house on the Underground Railroad. Charlotte's grandmother, Vandine, and her aunts Harriet, Margaretta, and Sarah all were heads of the women abolitionist movement and founded free private schools for black children in Philadelphia. And her father robert was also a sailmaker and abolitionist like james and became a recruiter in maryland during the civil war where he came down with erysipelas which is a skin infection and when he died from that in 1864 he was the first black man in america to be buried with full military honors so with all of this in mind it is no wonder that charlotte was bound to do amazing things Charlotte was a relatively sickly child, and that followed her into adulthood. She often had what they called lung sickness, which could have been really bad asthma, or she could have been especially susceptible to bronchitis or pneumonia. She may have even had a minor case of tuberculosis, or what they would have then called consumption that had lasting bronchial effects. So she didn't go out much as a child, and her sickness, in addition to her father not wanting her to attend segregated public school, meant that she was privately tutored as a child. Robert wanted her to receive an equal education opportunity that she wasn't going to get in Philadelphia, so he sent her to Salem, Massachusetts in 1854 when she was 16 years old. Salem during this time had a large free black community and the schools were integrated, which was really cool to read and learn about because I grew up in the South. And all I heard about growing up was how everything was segregated and Brown versus Board of Education and the Little Rock Nine and Ruby Bridges and Martin Luther King Jr. and Malcolm X and how integration was such a big deal. And that so many people fought for and lost their lives for in the South. And while that is still true, 100% I assume that's how it was in the entire country, so to read that Charlotte came to Salem and attended an integrated school pre-civil war when slavery was still rampant in the south was incredible to read. So she attended the Higginson Grammar School for Girls, where at that time she was the only black student, which made her feel like she had to be so much better than her peers. She had to excel among the other students. She had to read all the time over 100 books in one year that she documented in her journal. She had to learn French and German and Latin. In addition to everything else that she was learning, one account of her life that I read said that every lesson that she learned was a triumph, not only for herself, but for every oppressed black person in America at the time, by excelling in all things She could help convince a hostile world that black people were just as capable of self-improvement as white people, which is such a heavy burden for one person to bear, especially when they are a child. At this time, she also started keeping a journal of everything and it was published posthumously. So I will be including quotes where I can from that. And there is a link in the description to a free online version that I found for anyone who wants to read more because I obviously can't include it all here. It's like 400 pages. Her first entry in her journal is actually about her going to school. She's upset because she woke up at 5am and the sun was already up and she vows that he will not have that advantage again. And she talks about how beautiful the flowers are and then goes on and on to talk about how she's standing by the window, taking in all the surroundings and listening to the birds sing. And then she remembers she has arithmetic. When she lived in Salem, she stayed with Charles Lennox Remond, who is said to have been the first black public speaker for the abolishment of slavery. And just like the rest of Charlotte's family, he was also a women's rights activist and associated with the Underground Railroad. His sister, I think might get her own episode, um, because she's also really amazing. And her name is Sarah Parker Remond. So just stay tuned for that. But she was surrounded by really awesome and influential people in Salem as well. So it's this really cool web of this like amazing family that she was surrounded by who all were supporting her as a black woman in a time where women were disrespected and black people were disrespected. So if you were a black woman, you were very disrespected. But that's not to say that she did not experience discrimination and hate from people based strictly on the color of her skin. In one of her journal entries from 1854, she writes, quote, I am hated and oppressed because God gave me dark skin. How did this cruel, this absurd prejudice ever come to exist? When I think of it, a feeling of indignation rises in my soul too deep for utterance. She writes a lot about her race in her journal and that it was always sort of this monster that was looming at all times and creeping into every aspect of her life. She wrote that it was, quote, this constant galling sense of cruel injustice and wrong, and I cannot help feeling it very often. And intrudes upon my happiest moments and spreads a dark, deep gloom over everything. And it really does creep into everything that she writes about. She felt that she could never fit in no matter how unprejudiced the people around her were, and how every time her race got her denied from an ice cream shop or a museum or a school, it just confirmed it for her. Her diary is beautiful but heartbreaking it's a peek into antebellum life for people of color she says in one entry and this one is kind of long so stay with me but quote oh it is so hard to go through life meaning contempt with contempt hatred with hatred fearing with too good reason to love and trust hardly anyone whose skin is white however lovable attractive and congenial and seeming in the bitter passionate feelings of my soul again and again there rises the question when oh when shall this cease is there no help how long oh how long must we continue to suffer to endure conscience answers it is wrong it is ignoble to despair Let us labor earnestly and faithfully to acquire knowledge, to break down the barriers of prejudice and oppression. Let us take courage, never ceasing to work, hoping and believing that if not for us, for another generation, there is a brighter day in store when slavery and prejudice shall vanish before the glorious light of liberty and truth." When the rights of every colored man shall everywhere be acknowledged and respected, and he shall be treated as a man and a brother." She was also justifiably really distraught, and wrote a lot about a black man that escaped slavery to Boston, and was captured and imprisoned with multiple guards awaiting trial to determine if they should free him or sentence him to death, essentially, whether that was by execution, or being extradited back to the South to be worked to death. She kept writing about it and how upset she was by it and she was giving this like day by day update on the trial and what everyone was hearing. And she visited Boston and talked about the, quote, soldiers who were looking from the windows with an air of insolent authority, which made her blood boil while she felt the strongest contempt for their cowardice and servility. The man who she calls Mr. Burns, was unfortunately sent back to servitude and she went on and on about how terrible it was and how Massachusetts let everyone down and the judicial system was cowardly and should be regarded only with scorn and that there was an attempt to rescue him but he was so heavily guarded by soldiers with bayonets and fucking cannons that he couldn't be. That this man would be deprived of his freedom for committing the great crime of leaving a life of bondage in a state that, quote, proudly boasts of being the freest in the world on this very soil where the revolution of 1776 began, in the sight of the battlefield where thousands of brave men fought and died in opposition to tyranny, and how she felt that that was nothing compared to the oppression that they were experiencing then, and how the country itself was terrible, and how dare they celebrate Independence Day when things like this happen. I'm like, I know I'm talking about this quite a bit, but it was so influential for her. And she continued to write about it. And this literally made her father refuse to move to Massachusetts. You know, she was already an abolitionist, because of how she was raised. And Mr. Burns wasn't the first time she witnessed slaves escape to the North only to be brought back. But it seemed to me reading these entries that because Massachusetts seemed so progressive and was the heart of the beginning of of the American Revolution, that it should be different. And it wasn't. And it was really, it really just kind of made her hate the entire country. And she started really idolizing England and wanting to live there and she thought that it was terrible that communications over telegrams were spreading into America because England would then be influenced by the horribleness of America and although she wanted to live there and although her father did live there for a time there were things happening in America that were too important in her opinion so she stayed. And she also wrote during this time how she believed that churches and clergymen supported the institution of slavery. And she brought it up to people. Like She was very vocal about this and they vehemently opposed her beliefs. But she kept speaking these thoughts and the racial oppression that she faced made her question her faith a lot, too. She was a Christian, but she battled a lot of issues around that, like how God could create a world like this. And how Christians could support systematic oppression. When Charlotte graduated from Paganson Grammar School in 1855, she was honored as one of the finest pupils of her class. She then enrolled in the Salem Normal School, which is now Salem State University, because she wanted to be a teacher. She really enjoyed and appreciated her time at school, saying later that it was some of the happiest days of her life. She graduated the next year in 1856. Immediately following this, she got a job at the Epps Grammar School and became the first black teacher in Salem Public Schools. I read that she was accepted by the school board and the students and the community, quote, without even a flurry of excitement because she was so well respected. She taught there for the next two years and didn't really like teaching, honestly, but she liked living in Salem and the opportunities that she got here when it came to learning and to the abolitionist movement. She was able to attend all sorts of anti-slavery lectures and be part of societies and committees, and she also wrote a lot during this time. was published multiple times but unfortunately teaching and studying and attending all of these rallies was really bad on her health and in 1858 she left the salem school system and went back to philadelphia the newspaper the salem register wrote a whole article about her and said that her connection with the school was happy and there was no unpleasant circumstances and they were happy to report that she was a great teacher and that the community should also be given credit and craze for sanctioning this experiment of having a black teacher but the national anti-slavery standard reprinted this article and added that it was amazing that they wrote this. And that during this time, Salem was the most conservative city in Massachusetts, and they were showing how valuable and intelligent a woman of color could be, and that after all this, who could say that prejudice was invincible? She went back and forth between Salem and Philadelphia and took additional classes between 1859 and 1862, and then began teaching at her alma mater, Higginson Grammar School for Girls. During this time, she was also a member of the Salem Female Anti-Slavery Society, During the Civil War, there was a lot of land that was overtaken by the Union, like Port Royal in South Carolina in November of 1861, which freed over 10,000 slaves. In January of the next year, General Sherman, General Sherman, ooh, that's hard. General Sherman wrote to the War Department that instructors should be sent to educate these former slaves. This request was passed on to the Department of Treasury, which thankfully had Salmon P. Chase as the secretary, who saw this opportunity to show the rest of the country that black people were not only suited for servitude, and that if they were given the opportunities and access to education and land of their own, they can be positive contributors to society. And those that were on the other side of the argument in this war wouldn't have a leg to stand on anymore. So Edward L. Pierce, who was an abolitionist, was put in charge of this program and thus began the Port Royal Experiment. So in October of 1862, Charlotte sailed for St. Helena Island in South Carolina with a couple other teachers, and they educated these former slaves. She was the first black teacher to join this project, and young and old were finally able to learn how to read and to get the education that was denied for them for so long. And she didn't just teach them how to read. She also taught them black history because she felt that it was really important to demonstrate for these people that there were successful people in their history. She has a journal entry from November 13th, 1862, about teaching them about Hussain Louverture, the former governor general of Saint Dominique, who led the Haitian rebellion. But the unfortunate thing for Charlotte is that she didn't really fit in with any part of society there. She was in an authority position with white teachers, but was still on the receiving end of a lot of discrimination. But she also couldn't really connect with the students that she was teaching because they were from a different culture and many of them spoke different languages and they had different life experiences. And other than their excess of melanin, they didn't have much in common. She was really lonely, which she also writes about in her journal during that time, especially on December 14th, 1862. But on a positive note, the experiment was a success. By 1864 former slaves of all ages were reading and writing and buying land and children were enrolled in schools. So in 1864 when she left St Helena because of health issues she left knowing that she did good and that she helped prove that what her grandfather was fighting for decades before and what she was trying to prove to herself and the world that unlike what society was trying to say a black person was capable of self-improvement and being successful. Back home in Philadelphia, she wrote a lot. She had two articles published in the Atlantic Monthly about the Port Royal Experiment, which I will also include links to in the description if you want to read it in detail. After the war, she was the secretary of the Teachers Committee of the New England Freedmen's Union Commission, and she then went back to South Carolina in 1871 to teach at Robert Gould Shaw Memorial School in Charleston. The next year in 1872, she moved to Washington, D.C. to work at the Preparatory High School for Negro Youth, which was the only black college prep high school program in D.C. But she wasn't there for long because she then took a position with the U.S. Treasury the next year. But at the Preparatory School that was taught out of 15th Street Presbyterian Church, she met Reverend Francis Grimke, who was a former slave who was freed after the war and educated at Lincoln University, where he graduated as valedictorian. He studied law at Lincoln and Howard University before he decided to pursue a degree at the Princeton Theological Seminary. Charlotte and Reverend Francis were married in 1878, the same year that he graduated from Princeton. And Charlotte was a total cougar because Francis was 13 years younger than her. On New Year's Day, 1880, Charlotte gave birth to their first and only child named Theodora Cornelia, but she unfortunately died six months later. Although they never had another child of their own, they did become the guardians of their niece, Angelina Weld Grimke, who was a feminist poet and one of the major influences of the Harlem Renaissance. In 1885, they moved to Florida for a little bit until 1889, when they moved back to Washington, D.C. And that's where they stayed until her death. She also helped build up the church community and spent a lot of time dedicated to education and charity. In 1892, Charlotte formed the Colored Women's League with some other key figures, and Francis was a co-founder of the NAACP, the National Association for the Advancement of Colored People, and Charlotte helped found the National Association of Colored Women in 1896. Charlotte Louise Fortin Grimke died July 23, 1914 in Washington, D.C. I couldn't find the exact cause of her death, only that it was a lingering sickness that lasted for over a year. I also couldn't find much information about the later part of her life. She doesn't really write about it in her journal and all of the accounts that I found mostly just focus on her time in Salem and South Carolina. So I'll continue to search for more information as I go through things and update if I find things. But that's the story of Charlotte Fortin. In Salem, there's now a small park named after her and Salem State University has an exhibit dedicated to her. I want to end this account of her life with one of the poems that she wrote. It's called In Florida. And why I love Massachusetts, and I'm really enjoying my time here. I was born and raised in Florida. I don't think it's a good place to be right now. I don't think it's a safe place to be right now. I definitely don't think it would be sweet to be in Florida today, like how she writes. But it's nice to think of a time when Florida was sweet, and it's beautiful in its own hot and humid way and this poem does really capture some of that in florida today the roses blow and breath of orange blossoms fills the air in blooming thickets by a brook i know the mocking bird is pouring forth his rare rich song thrilling the charmed listener's heart in deep woods the fair pink lily grows pale as the wind flower she droops apart or glowing with the blushes of the rose from the dark pool she lifts her lovely head a radiant presence mid the woodland gloom while smiling on her head from the mossy bed sweet purple violets in beauty bloom mid their dark shining leaves magnolias gleam White as the snow that o'er our fields extend, and oleander trees beside a stream o'er laden with their rosy blossoms bend. O'er hedge and bank and bush the jasmine flings, its graceful golden leaves with a lavish hand, to boughs of ancient oaks, the gray moss clings its long, weird tresses by the soft breeze fanned. How sweet to linger in the shaded bowers, How sweet to catch gleams of the blue, blue sky, to dream away the softly gliding hours as on the fragrant flower-sewn earth we lie. Alas, it may not be. Our lot is cast in bleaker climes, neath duller skies we stray, still haunted by bright visions of the past. Sweet, sweet to be in Florida today. I do want to apologize if during that you heard my upstairs neighbors who have apparently taken up tap dancing uh, over this weekend because I have not been able to get anything done without hearing them stomping and clacking around, but still a beautiful poem nonetheless. Thank you so much for listening today. If you have a story from history or mythology that you'd like to hear me discuss, please reach out. You can email me at fdephistory at or message me on any social media that I never post on at FW History. I'm doing the sale series right now for the next few foreseeable episodes, but I will not be doing this forever. And I'm still adding to that list of things to cover. I might have to do a mythology piece soon to take a short break from this because it's been a while and I'm jonesing from a myths, man. But anyway, <laughs> if you like what you heard today, please consider subscribing or leaving a review. That would really help this podcast a lot. Um, Or tell your friends about it. I appreciate all of you. You're all amazing. And as always, friends, remember, history may be watching you. So don't fuck it up. Bye.